Crank and Commentaries. As always, I'm your host, Jaco Mastro, and as always, I'm joined by my very good friend and co-host, Keaton Byer. Hello, Keaton. Hello, how are you? Not too bad, not too bad. Uh, I did not tell you to get on with it this time, but um, the sentiment remains. You should get on with it. Okay, well, <laughs> on that, why don't we get on with it? Yeah. So last week, we kind of did a more of a background episode, as usual. We uh, went through the members of Monty Python, a bit of their history, and how it came to making this film. This film being uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Exactly. Monty Python and the Holy Grail. This is the second episode. It but is yeah, indeed. That is, that is basically it, what we did. We just did the background. We spent a lot of time on the background. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. But well, I think there was it's, a lot to get through. Uh, yeah, absolutely. There's a lot to get through, and it's it's quite relevant for this film, I think, because this film's also like you know, in a very uh, interesting period in their uh, in their career. So mm-hmm. you know, it's I think it's you gotta you gotta know all that stuff. I think um, specifically details being like they've you know they've already done the show right. They've done Flying Circus. Um, they Cleese kind of wants out at this point, right? John Cleese yeah, wants definitely. out. Yeah, he wants to do his own thing. Yeah, and there was kind of a theme of him being like, you know, able to do his own thing more right. than anybody else uh, from the beginning, and kind of will like his his again his aspirations seemed higher. Uh, I think was kind of what it what it was, um, and uh, yeah. Um, yeah, he kind of wanted out, but he was he was into doing a movie, so that's what they ended up doing uh, instead of uh, another series, I guess. Um, but yeah, so th- then we just basically talked about the pre-production, of which probably the most notable aspect is the fact that the whole movie was funded by, you know, mostly funded by uh, rock and roll bands. Like, yeah, you know, uh, interesting aspect of that. Yeah, weird, weird detail of the movie, but. But there you go, and it's good for them. Um, you just hold on one second. Just, my computer is not acting like it's plugged in, even though. Oh. Oh no. The cable is not. Oh in no. The computer. Where, where is it? It's just lying next to the hole. So the solution. It's the. Oh, so you're saying it's not? It's acting like it's not plugged in because it's in fact not plugged in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is plugged oh, in. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I see. It's all good now. Um, so yeah, so that that's basically all we talked about last week. We didn't really get into anything else, <laughs> but I mean that's usually what we do, you know. Uh, part two is for the production of this movie because well, is, why, why don't why don't we then do that and talk about how they put the movie together? What happened yeah. on set? Yeah, let's let's get on with it. Get on with it. Yes, get on with it. That's that's the sentiment here. Yeah, that's the sentiment here. Um, yeah, basically this this movie there was a lot more to the actual production than I expected. Not to say that I didn't really expect much. I just you know it's kind of a low budget movie, so I kind of expected it to be kind of just thrown together, right? But which it is, but there's some interesting things come from that. So they ba- like. They, the first thing they did was scout castles, right? Because there's going to be actually quite a few castles and, like, quite mm-hmm. a few different rooms in 
supposedly different well it's, it's a medieval uh like setting so i mean obviously the first thing you're gonna want to think is like yo i want to have some castles yeah i mean it's king arthur and he's That's like medieval the script literally has him going from castle to castle so <laughs> mm. i mean you're gonna at least need one or two castles so they yeah they kind of limit their search to scotland and wales I I don't know if Scotland and Wales did Scotland and Wales have the best castles or is it just maybe cheaper to film there? It's probably. The I latter. don't know. I I think it might be the former. It might be the former. Well, I mean, I, the like, landscape I think, in combination yeah, with the castles. I think also the landscape is more empty. Scotland has the best castles. I don't know. Uh, that's that's the information. I I'm think getting. it's just the. Um, Visually, I think it's better than England. Yeah, that's 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 what I'm getting here. So eventually, they settled upon two or three in Scotland and one in Wales. There was gonna be more, several more, in fact, um, that they had like secured. But then, I guess at the last minute, I don't know what it was actually called, but it was like the Heritage Board, I guess, of Scotland. Mm-hmm. They uh, they shut it down because they did not trust the production, which is you know. Honestly, probably fair enough. Yeah, they didn't seem like they had their shit together the entire time. Yeah, exactly. It's like, what, you've got two directors who have never directed before, and it's a, it's those comedians who have never made a movie before? Never mind, you can't use this castle. Exactly. But luckily, though, they got a couple. It's Dune Castle and uh, Castle Stalker are the two main ones. Okay. And which castles are those in the film? So, Dune Castle is the one with the French men and the Sparrow conversation. Okay, so that's just the same castle they reuse it. Yes. Huh. Yeah, that's the same castle, different angles. And I believe that's also the interiors. Okay. Um, oh, no, hold on. No, that's, that's not true. I take, I, I, I take that back. However, the Castle Stalker is the, uh, the final scene. With okay. the, uh, the army charging, have the big so, battle, and then they get arrested. Yeah, it's it's quite spectacular, like scenery. It's like yeah, <laughs> quite a spectacular castle. And then the very first exterior shot of a castle at the beginning of the film is Kidwelly Castle, Kidvelly Castle, Kidwelly Castle. Probably Kidwelly in South Wales. Or actually, it's Welsh. Uh, there's no fucking. There's no way of knowing how that's pronounced. Yeah, who knows? It's probably Shidwalla Castle um, in South Wales. And then the exterior shot of the Swamp Castle during the Sir Lancelot one. Like, so just while Sir Lancelot is running at the castle, basically. Mm -hmm. That's in East Sussex. Okay. That's Bottom Castle. So, a few different castles, but mostly I think Dune Castle is. So, yeah, the Dune Castle is the interior. Dune Castle, they took a bunch of different shots of it and made it look like different castles yeah exactly so that's that's kind of the main the main castle that's the that's the practical castle and then the other one's the artsy castle (laughs) oh i see so which one was castle anthrax that would have been dune because they had the the interiors okay like many many interiors for castle anthrax and that's what they're saying is they're like they looked at so many castles and like a lot of them had like really kind of tacky like well they were saying in the um in the documentary that a lot of these castles have been like redone on the inside. Exactly. That's what I'm thinking of. Exactly. This this one castle, basically they just left it old. Right. 
Yeah, exactly. And that's that was Dune Castle. So they, they, they get their castles, there are a few of them, um, and they start filming. First day of filming is in Glencoe, and they trek up the top of what they call the mountain. Um, but, you know, it's the UK, so... There are some mountains in uh, in Wales, in Scotland. Yeah, I know, but the mountains, r- relatively speaking, in uh, okay. in, in, the, in that part of the world. But yeah, they climb up the top of a mountain. It's t- I'm sure it's a, a a big old climb with a camera crew. Yeah. And apparently, when they got to the top and s- they were gonna start shooting, it's like the first fucking day, the camera broke. Oh jeez. And this is. And they didn't have a, a second one. I don't really know like what the deal is. I think they did because they managed to get shots out of it because this is the bridge of doom like at the end. Like Oh, they did that first. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and it was this like big hike up this, you know, mountain. Uh Uh-huh. The camera breaks. Yeah, that looked like a real mountain. Yeah, it looked it did and like the, you know, the cavern where they were throwing the the bodies the to holy the holy hand grenade. Yeah. No, 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 the like where the bridge was, where they when you got the questions wrong and they tossed your oh right yeah, yeah, yeah. that that bit. So yeah, they get there, the camera breaks. Apparently, and then the producer was saying about this. He says after that, it got it quote got worse, but overall, in the grand scheme of shooting, I think the implication that it was it was so miserable that this this was a good day, is what he called it. Right. Yeah. Um. I mean, like. The weather, if you just watch the film, the weather doesn't look good. No, it doesn't. But, I mean, some of that might be, like, implemented. Because, as we'll see, they really liked they liked their smoke machine. So there's definitely some, oh, uh, I see. some faux mist in there. I see. But, I mean, like, you know, I think definitely up in Scotland, you do get a lot of real mist as well. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm sure there's a mixture of yeah. the two. <laughs> yeah. Um. So yeah, so the, the the bridge had been constructed for them earlier, like um, by the they bridge had of death? some yeah the bridge of death. So it was like a real like you know set piece that they had built in this on this fucking mountain, so to speak, um, that you would actually have to cross. So they go up, and apparently, uh, I somehow doubt that's completely safe. Who yeah, who knows? Like it's their first film. It's this like you know yeah uh, ragtag group of people funded by rock stars. Like, yeah. like, who is accountable, really? I, I don't know. Like, the record company, I guess? This is, like, the adult. <laughs> well, I don't know. Was it, a, was it a union crew? I don't know. I don't know, actually. Yeah. That would be good information to have. Um, somehow I doubt it. Yeah, somehow I do doubt it as well, but I don't know. So, apparently, um, they get to the top, the bridge is there, um... And then Graham Chapman apparently couldn't cross the bridge. He was having like uh, an onset of particularly bad tremors due to some, uh, uh, and apparently like Palin, he was saying that he had like uh, Graham Chapman had been like kind of a what Michael Palin described as a mountaineer, or rather Graham Chapman had described himself to Michael Palin as a, ma- mountain, as a mountaineer. mountaineer who was like you know done all this sort of stuff. And uh, so he found this kind of like odd, right? That it was yeah. he had these this fear of heights. But later, apparently, Graham Chapman attributed this to the fact that he had had several drinks that morning. Um, okay. And I don't know if that was like 
I think that I don't know if the implication because at this point he was actually quite deep in his alcoholism. It was about through three years after this, like during the making of uh, the life of Brian, that he uh, he became sober because I think he was worried it was going to interfere with the the filming process. Um, he just so I I don't know if the implication is that you know he hadn't had a drink and that was causing the tremors or like I don't really quite understand or he was I, like right. Point being is he 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 couldn't cross the bridge. So, in the scene, the wide shot where uh, the king is crossing the bridge, King Arthur's crossing the bridge, is actually the AD, is the assistant director, crossing. In, oh, okay. In Grand so they dressed him place. up in all the. I mean, good thing like so little of his face is actually visible. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Costume. So that's really easy. So to, as long as exactly yeah, it's really easy to substitute all these guys. Yeah, especially if like. In fact, they did. Many times. There are a couple scenes where you can see, like, Lancelot has his helmet on because John Glees has to be Tim or exactly. something Exactly, like that. yeah. <laughs> That's, yeah, exactly. It's fucking hilarious. It's, we yeah. mentioned it last week, how they had to be really careful about, like, mm-hmm. when they were writing it and also, I'm sure, when they were filming, like, you know, continuity must have yeah, been. Yeah, and they probably didn't have the budget to pull off, like, uh, a split screen. Yeah, or like the, you know, the they're especially on like a shoestring, you know, fucking like on the last, yeah, exactly. the last minute, you know. Cuz so I watched a, a, a couple documentaries. Uh one of them you saw as well is the one from yeah. at the time, and it's very interesting cuz the other one is from like the early 2000s. Um Okay. So their perspectives like the shift in it is quite funny because okay, like yeah. at the well, time because when they were doing it the first time they didn't know it was going to be good but yeah they, well they didn't know it was going to be good and it, they weren't quite as legendary and yeah there's all these factors at play so it's kind of like the first one they're playing for the camera and then the second one is like they're sitting and they're being kind of more candid um, yeah. But what I found hilarious is Terry Gilliam has the exact same vibe, basically. And is like, he's like almost yeah, no Yeah, he's different. got a weird vibe. Yeah. <laughs> like, he's clearly more uh, articulate and he's wiser yeah. in the later one. Right. But he, his vibe has, like, not changed at all, which I found interesting. very interesting. Uh, whereas all of them seem different vibe i mean they're all the same people obviously i mean it's hard right. to describe kind of what i'm talking about but he he just had a uh so th- this was this was after graham chapman had passed away then right yes so he was, yeah he yeah he in wasn't that, yeah. in the later one um he what was it 80 89 or something yeah. yeah so so during this during this bridge scene there uh Gilliam was describing how they did it basically uh which was just you know they were I think to illustrate that it was crude is the word he used is that they had the guys like crouch down so that they could like jump to get more of a like springing effect So this is when uh, they get ejected but when they get the questions wrong on the bridge too. Exactly Yeah like, what and he was is like, your favorite what is your name what is Blue. your quest? Oh yeah, what is and your favorite what color? What is your Blue. favorite no color? Green. Yeah. Blue. No green. Ah. Uh, yeah. So he's just saying like that scene, like they, they like yeah, it's crude, uh, but it worked because they just you know had them jump and then did a hard cut to throwing a dummy into the, the into cavern. The, yeah. 
or the chasm or whatever. Um, and yeah, I thought, you know, that's the first day, right? So that's like, you know, you're figuring it out. And it's like, it is kind of a complicated thing to do on the first yeah, day. Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering why they chose that to be their first scene. Maybe get it out of the way. Maybe. But yeah, who knows? Who knows? Um, but that's not like, it gets weirder and there's like a lot of other shit. So there's a scene, I'm trying to recall, maybe you can refresh my memory. There's a scene with a, a quote, dirt eater. Do you remember this? I'm thinking, like, I'm thinking of the peasants. That's the closest thing. That's my, f- my mind first went to the socialist peasant. Where they're like, um, you know, digging up all the filth. Yeah, exactly. There's <laughs> some wonderful filth over here. Yeah. Uh, but I think actually what it is, because they later said that it got heavily cut, like, in the end, which which on, ultimately makes this story that much worse, um, that a lot of the scene got cut. But I think it's the scene either with uh, 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 Roger the Shrubber just before oh, okay. you encounter Roger the Shrubber or the scene w- just before the bring out your dead okay. because it, those seemed like they were in the same place. Right. Basically Michael Palin was a character who was on the ground just fucking eating dirt. Ew. And then, so they, I guess the shot would start with that and then it would some more of that, that got heavily cut and then a cart rolled into the scene and then the scene continued. Yeah. So that's what it was, right? Okay. Michael Palin eating dirt, cart rolls into scene, scene happens. Um, so apparently how they did this, right, because he's eating dirt, and they show it, apparently. Again, in the movie, uh-huh. we don't see it very much, which, again, makes this all the worse. Um, yeah. He was actually supposed to be eating chocolate. Yeah. Because uh, chocolate looks a lot like dirt. Um, it does. According to Michael Palin, it looked a little bit too much like dirt. Uh, oh, so he didn't know what to eat. Yeah, he didn't know what to eat. So he would say every time I'd get maybe about 50% chocolate and 50% Ew. dirt. And like he, he said it, there's Ew. like sh- pig shit and like, you know, and even Terry Gilliam was like, yeah, there's like fucking dirt and pig shit and piss and it was just horrible, horrible That's trash gross. all around. <laughs> Um. So how many times do they have to shoot that? Enough times, because so something you should know is his, apparently his uh his reputation in the group is he's the nice one. You know he's yeah. the nice guy. Uh, he lost his shit apparently at yeah. one point during this scene. So after one of the takes, uh, they were like, "So we have to do it again." Um, and he's obviously like, "I'm. Uh-huh. I hope that we're fucking done with this." So he's like, uh, yeah. was that good? Was that good? And they were like, no, no, we got to do it again. And he was like, why? Why do we have to do it again? And he was like, the, the dirt eater's uh, back was in the shot. So, you know, we have to do it again. And it's yeah. so funny uh, the way that Michael Palin describes it. He, he, he describes that he basically exploded and threw a hissy fit. Yeah. He described he threw himself on the ground and was like flailing like a dog. He was like literally threw like a tantrum, like a rolling in the yeah, shit. Yeah, like literally. He was like he was like I can't do this. Why am I doing this, guy? Like literally. Yeah. Uh, 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 and apparently, uh, uh, 
fucking Graham Chapman and, and John Cleese basically just started a cup plotting. <laughs> right. But, yeah. <clears throat> so they actually did get a take they Eventually, liked, Eventually, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure he calmed down. Yeah, and ate the dirt. Yeah, and ate the rest of the dirt. Gross. So, according to John Cleese, um, early on in the shoot, they were all staying at the same hotel. And then so, but it was kind of miserable because okay. the, the example he used, I, I'm sure there were more of the example he used, um, is after they would cut for the day, race back to the hotel because there was only okay. enough hot water for half the crew to shower. Oh, jeez. <laughs> So it was just like a this hotel's worse than Faulty Towers. <laughs> <laughs> good one, very good one. Yeah, it, it, it seriously though it is. It seemed like it because uh, both Cleese and Idol they fled to a a different hotel. Actually, do you think maybe this is what gave John Cleese inspiration to make that show? I mean, no. I think he'd already started. When did Faulty okay, Towers start? Started. Yeah, I think Faulty Towers. <laughs> yeah. I think it had already started. Let me just check real quick. Just because you gotta know. Oh, hold on. 1975 is when it was broadcast. Well, this movie came out in 1975, didn't it? No, I'm sure he had been conceived already. But yeah, so they they fled. Him and uh, uh, Idol fled to a different hotel uh, that was better and quite a bit further away. um, Which... I think okay. bothered some of the other uh, members of the cast and crew. Uh, or maybe, Oh, because they, yeah. I don't exactly know why. They were just kind of, just, and they didn't name names either. It just seemed like, uh, especially because this was, um, who was it? It was Idol who was telling the story about them moving. Going to yeah, the and he's, he, he made yeah. the implication that, that other people were a little bit upset with them about it. Um, but apparently... Well, I mean, I guess if they're further away, it takes them longer to get there. Yeah, yeah, I guess. I guess that's true. Maybe they I don't know. I don't know. But apparently, Carol Cleveland was also staying at this hotel that they moved to. Um, and Carol yeah. Cleveland, who we mentioned last, is the, uh... She played Zoot. Zoot. She is the legendary Python yeah. uh, collaborator. She was actually with them from their first episode. Um, so she's been there the whole oh. time. Um, she was mostly on set during the anthrax scene. I don't think she had any other roles. Yeah. In that movie. Did she? Uh, let's I don't see. Think so. But yeah, check. Uh, Dingo. Oh, oh yeah, right. right. Well, her twin sister. Techn- technically, she's two characters. Yeah, yeah. Right. 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 Actually, that wasn't clear. Well, that's not clear if that's the same person. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's a weird scene. Yeah, very. I think a lot of that scene was cut too. <laughs> yeah. Um. But yeah, so she's 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 on set mostly for that that one scene. 
Um, and apparently she improvised the uh, the oh shit line, which is the best, well, honestly, the best part of that scene. Right. <laughs> is like when he leaves and they're all like, oh no, stay, stay. He can handle us. He can handle us. And then he's finally yeah. gone. He's like, oh shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hilarious. Um, her description of the shoot, she's, she had seemed to have a good time, but she described her, um, being uh quote tension in the air yeah uh which uh this is the first time i i heard mention of this but there seemed to, it seemed to be actually a thing because apparently the crew was was angry she said um and they were on the she said they were on the verge of mutiny really for which what was, uh, it's it like she might have been exaggerating a bit but there was definitely tension. Apparently, the two directors, because we mentioned Terry being directed Terry. by both Terrys, yes. Apparently, they had a bit of conflicting direction. Oh. Like, uh, and I don't know if it was, like, the issue was because of this conflicting direction or if the issue was, like, one of them or I don't know what the the problem was. But um, according to, 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 according to tell, Terry Gilliam... Uh, he was saying that him and Terium is a great quote. He seemed, uh, quote, he was like, we seem to be in agreement about everything before shooting started. Life, the cosmos, everything. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then presumably as soon as it gets down to once they're on set, everything changes. E- exactly. And basically what was happening is they were, they were giving alternate directions, like conflicting directions, oh, which is probably night not, not helpful, helpful or nightmarish um because you saw in that in that first like the earlier documentary like the way excuse me sorry the way terry gilliam described it is like they would like tap in and out so like you know yeah like, exactly. while he was so, talking to the camera there i also found it interesting that i think terry gilliam just seemed a lot more enthusiastic about the whole thing yeah well also because he wasn't acting <laughs> As much. Yeah. And in those documentaries, he wasn't yeah. acting as much, it seemed. Um, mm-hmm. And he had no lines. I mean, his his on-camera role is much less of a thing, right? Yeah, that's true. He would go on to do m- m- way more direction, obviously. So so he is... Oh, uh, absolutely, yeah. So clearly yeah, exactly. He enjoyed it's it more. Clearly more his arena than any of the uh, the rest of them. I don't know that. I don't know that none of them directed anything else. But, um, you know, he's obviously the director <laughs> that came out of the. Who did Life of Brian? Uh, that's a good question. Was it Graham Chapman? I have like a feeling it was like Graham Chapman. Uh, Terry Jones. Terry Jones. So just one Terry this time. Okay, interesting. So just Terry. Well, I mean, it seems it kind of makes sense why Terry Jones okay. directed this one, and we'll get into it right now. <laughs> um, get on with it. Yes, get on with it. Yeah, yeah. According to according to Michael Palin, uh, Gilliam was super oh, okay. obsessed with how the shot looked. Um, like he was super obsessed with how everything looked and had like no issues getting actors to do uncomfortable things like, you know, have John Cleese 
crouch in a super uncomfortable position for 15 takes. Well, at least he didn't have to eat shit. Yeah, exactly. He didn't have to eat shit. And the reason, you know, he has them crouching for 15 takes because, you know, this... And the quote he said was because he had to have the sun. This is Michael Palin's quote. He had to have the sun glinting off his helmet just right, you know? Yeah. So that's kind of where his mind was at. And it's very clear, even in retrospect. I mean, it's there's no really lasting animosity, it seems. But Cleese was very grumpy with him at the time about the whole thing. Um, yeah. So specifically, there's that one scene where Cleese's valet is shot played by Eric Idle. What's his name? I forget. Doesn't yeah. matter. Uh what his uh, his his page or whatever. Yeah. Uh anyway, he gets shot with the arrow from the swamp castle. He's they're talking about stadium. <laughs> uh yeah. So apparently there there's a scene that they they do a take and they do a take, and John Cleese is extremely pleased with it. And he was saying in this interview, he's like, you know, the way a movie works, filming a movie is like it's a very, like, ebb and flow kind of thing, you know? Like, there's only a few yeah. good takes out of all your the takes that you do, right? The point is, making a good take is a precious thing, right? Um, yeah. So he did a take he was extremely satisfied with. Uh, and he was like, so how how is that take? And their response, like Terry Gilliam and the cameraman, was like, "Not enough smoke." Um, and apparently, he was. Oh. He, he the word he used was incensed. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he was pissed the fuck off. He was like, like they were only paying attention to like how much smoke there was and not whether or not the take was good. Yeah. Exactly. From. from from an acting perspective. From, from an acting perspective, then also, like, really, you're going to make me do, like, another take just because the smoke wasn't, like, I did the take perfectly, like... Yeah. You, like, that take was great. Why do we have to do another take? Because, like, I don't... He just didn't... He was not... He didn't see how it added to the comedy as much. Right. And apparently he, he said even, he was, like, he made sarcastic comments after that for the rest of the movie. Mm-hmm. Like, uh... <laughs> Like, was the smoke funny enough in that take? Was the example he right, used. Right, yeah. Which is pretty funny. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it was, I mean, the tension really mostly seemed to be Cleese and Gilliam were the main people at odds, but um, mm-hmm. I think it was everybody, kind of. Well, everybody just seemed to, like, I don't know. They just seemed like all kind of big personalities. And, like, yeah. And, like, also they kind of all own it. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And when no, that very... happens, like, everybody's trying to make it good in their own way. Everybody's got a vision. Yeah, exactly. And you can try and Venn diagram that vision as, you know, as much as you can, but it's always going to be... Yeah, normally putting six guys in equal charge of something is not a great idea. Yeah, the Venn diagram is going to be harder. And I mean, I guess that's why they have these two guys as directors, right? And I mean... Yeah, exactly. In the the older documentary, that's why I mentioned earlier the interesting kind of like uh, position between the two documentaries. At the time, they were talking about how they were like... They were, they were being jocular, but they were like talking about how they were like... Uh, they're more they're paying them slightly more respect than they normally would because they're the directors right (laughs) Uh, yeah well i don't know 
if we have information on this, but I got the sense that when they were shooting that documentary, that that was early in the production of the film. Yeah, you think? I don't have any, like, information to go on, but that's just the vibe I got. Why do you think that? Well, just because, like, um, like how they were talking about uh, the directors and stuff like that, they hadn't quite got fed up with them yet. Right, yeah, it didn't seem quite in, like, a... Yeah, yeah, no, you're right. It did seem didn't seem like there was any tension, really. Yeah, and I mean, I guess it seems know, like it's... most of the like most of what they weren't happy about was like you know kind of the weather and shit like that. Yeah, just circumstantial stuff. But yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, so like, Cleese described like the way he framed it is the tension was between like the the people who were concerned with how it looked which was mostly, you know, Gilliam and, you know, the, the film people. Mm-hmm. Um, and then those who were more concerned with, you know, what was happening in the movie, which was like, you know, the, the rest of the pythons, basically. And apparently there was kind of like this breaking point uh, where it kind of all came to a head you know, during the scene where, you know, they all have the animals tossed on them, like from over the castle, all the dead animals. Yeah, 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 get, yeah. yeah. Are those actual dead animals? It looked like it, didn't yeah. it? They looked at least like taxidermied. Yeah, that's really gross. It is. It's un- it's not good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they had uh they had, it doesn't seem pleasant. So apparently in order to do this, it wasn't 100% clear how he described it, but they had to do a mat shot basically yeah. to do it. Um and in order to so line up So for those of you who yeah, don't go ahead. Yeah. know what a mat shot is it's basically like um when you're combining elements between like something on the set and some either pre-recorded thing or painted thing or something like that yeah exactly basically it just means that they're cutting out part of the frame and replacing it with something precisely else. and in this case what they were doing was uh the, they were the, the top half of it was going to be the uh the uh, Frenchman throwing the stuff, and the bottom half was, you know, there. I mean, I think it was pre-them throwing, because obviously you have to have the stuff coming down and over and whatever, but it was just that wide shot. Anyway, the point being is they're in this, like, ditch, right? They're crouched in this ditch, as yeah. you recall. Um, and according to, uh, you know, Gilliam, this is the reason for this. You know, they have to get the angles to line up, and they're like, they have to do it. Apparently, Clee snapped at him, basically, at one point. Uh, it was like yeah. like you know, pretty heavily, uh, you know, pretty angry about it. And Gilliam snapped back with like, you know, you fucking you wrote the damn thing, you know. If you don't like what I'm doing, I'm I'm out of here, you know. And apparently he just like went like lay down right, in the grass, yeah, yeah. like a while like far away, you know. Terry uh, Jones fucking calmed everybody down, you know. It was a big thing. Uh, yeah. and, and according to Cleese in the in the retrospect, he was, and again, it didn't seem like it was like there was still animosity. They were both laughing about it, right? It wasn't a serious thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was, they were definitely, it was not, not, yeah, not a real thing. But according to Cleese, he was, he said he was, quote, quite mean to Terry <laughs> uh, on that occasion. Mm-hmm. Terry Gilliam. Yeah, yeah. Terry Gilliam. He said, yeah. I've, and it's because he didn't want to crouch in the ditch or whatever? Yeah, basically. He was like, and, and I mean the way he describes it, like 
is the way Terry Gilliam described a- or treated actors. Kind of the way mm-hmm. he, he, he treated cutouts in animation. He made that connection. Oh, I see. Uh, yeah, because the way he described it is like he would, Terry Gilliam would have you like stand one place and be like, actually just move like one inch to the side. Actually move one inch back. Actually move one inch this other way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he said he would do that for like literally like 15 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and you know, while you're in the uncomfortable positions, so presumably, you know, they had he had him in the ditch and was like, "Wait, I gotta readjust this to get the shot." All the you know, all these yeah, things, okay, or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And you know, it's this is the the probably the never-ending battle between uh, those in front of the camera and those behind it. Indeed. <laughs> I imagine that's a never-ending battle between Chad Palomino and Steve Buscemi. Um. Oh yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So basically, they, it seemed like most of the actors preferred Terry Jones, which is which is interesting. To, yeah, interesting to bring it all the way back to why he probably did Life of Brian solo. Yeah. Um. And the reason I guess is because according to Palin, is that Jones was always uh he was more aware of the actors what they needed and stuff and was just better more of an actor's director and obviously makes sense yeah which is interesting given that i think terry gilliam did more directing afterwards yeah absolutely and i mean i guess yeah it's just because it's monty python right it's just their movie so it's like yeah we want to work with the guy that we vote liked working with him more (laughs) yeah yeah but yeah you're right so it is interesting it's super interesting but yeah apparently this was a big enough tension that Carol Cleveland noticed it, but yeah, I don't know. It, not a huge deal in the long run, I don't think. I think this was kind of nearing the end of the group, right? So yeah, definitely. There's obviously, you know, a lot of tension in a group that big, as you were saying. Yeah. So basically, about all this, like, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, um, I'll get on with it. I'll fin- end all this basically now. But to wrap it up, really, Gilliam was just saying, and I think this is interesting. Is his philosophy regarding the whole thing is that, you know, the reason he was so invested in, like, making every shot, like, look good and trying to make it, like, look like, I guess, a real movie is that he thought it was, like, that's creating an immersive setting like that is how it was going to elevate the comedy, right? Like, he wanted it. Right, yeah, yeah. He wanted the, the Graham Chapman to, like, be, like, a King Arthur in an actual, like, medieval setting right yeah well i mean the interesting thing is like you know from a visual perspective it actually looks somewhat realistic in terms of like i mean obviously i've never actually been back in time but like you know yeah no with all the shit everywhere and like but you no, know. totally and I, I i see what i know what you're saying and the griminess and all the costumes it like there was an element of comedy to that absolutely and i think in i think so i think in that way he succeeded like yeah, I would say so. Uh, so I think it's good that he had his uh, his hand in it, you know? Um, yeah, definitely. But yeah, so basically the last thing is, you know, in the last scene they had that fucking huge army, and I was thinking, like, how did they afford all those people? Extras? Yeah. Um, and it turns out they're students, so I presume they didn't pay them. <laughs> yeah. 
So they just got who knows. You said they just got twenty five university students from a nearby school. Oh, there was only twenty five of them. Yeah, along? apparently. He said about okay, twenty five. But it looked like more. They just probably shot them from different angles to make it look like there were more of them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But yeah, that's that's basically the production. Like I'm sure there's more, but mm-hmm. you know. More stories and things, but you know. That's the gist of it. Uh, but we have more for you. We're going to come back. We have uh, maybe a little bit of a uh, uh, a diversion, but there is a little bit more to talk about. But we're going to take a quick diversion okay. prior to Let's that. Let's do the diversion. Yeah. <laughs> So, this is the truth. Yeah, this is... So we're talking about... True stuff. True things. So... Is this movie true? I mean, this this is a pretty straightforward, like, path to what the truth should be. And for those of you who don't know, the truth is... Are we going to talk about the Holy Grail? No, actually, that would be a good one. I mean, I mean, I mean it's more direct than that, like, quite literally. Like, this movie's about King okay. Arthur. We're going to talk about King Arthur... For those of you who don't know, th- the truth is the section where we find something about the movie and we connect it to something true or we verify its truthfulness or we find something in real life that is true about it. And it's just all about the truth, baby. It's what's true. Definitely. So, I mean, yeah, the Holy Grail would have been a good thing to talk about, but... Well, you want to know an interesting fact about the Holy yes, Grail? Yes, I mean, we'll, we'll save... The real Holy Grail talk for when we do uh, Indiana Jones. But yes, tell me your, the Holy Grail fact. You know, the Holy Grail has not always been uh, necessarily a cup. Interesting. I, right. Right. I remember hearing. So like sometimes it's it's uh, sometimes it's described as like a bowl. Yeah. Or even a stone. A stone. Yeah, just a stone. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Well, yeah, because so. it. I I was reading about it briefly a while ago, or re- well, fairly recently, before we were doing this. But the Grail wasn't initially connected to like the the cup of Christ, like the chalice of Christ, like that is in in the movie. Yeah. Well, it's kind of a. It's just this conflation that happens. Yeah, later, and right? there's also you know something. Is it something to do with the translation as well? Is like. As you said, it's like something to do the translation. There's like some sort of conflation that occurred that it's like not necessarily connected. But anyway, we're getting down a rabbit hole of getting on with it that we yeah. don't actually have the information for. So we shouldn't. We'll wait till we do again. The fucking this is the we're getting into. We're doing the truth prematurely. Um, yeah. Well, I don't know. I think it's related. It's it's va- it is related, but it's not. The, we're yeah. ta- it's this is we're, it's King Arthur. We're talking about King Arthur. I'm pretty sure most people are at least vaguely familiar with the concept of King Arthur, right? And the Knights of the Round Table? And the Knights of the Round Table, yeah. So I was looking into it. I wanted to figure out, you know, what the actual deal is. And, I mean, it's a, it's a legend, right? That's the yeah, so understanding. As far as we know, there's no recorded historical King Arthur. Yeah, well, so here's the thing. is There is some debate about that, but... 
I think by most uh, uh, accredited historians would agree that it's not real. But well, I'm saying know, like we don't have like like physical evidence of somebody who is King Arthur. Yeah, exactly. There's no there's there's references here and there that could potentially be attributed to it. But yeah, exactly. Yeah. Basically, what's interesting is because what I wanted to do here initially was I wanted to go through the movie and be like, okay, here's what they got right about the story of King Arthur. Here's what they got wrong, you know? Right. Um, but what I found super interesting is there's no canonical story of, of Arthur. Right. Which... It's a bunch of different stories by different writers that were kind of like merged together into this uh, world of King Arthur. Yeah, exactly. It's like it's a, it's a whole universe of it's a fan fiction universe really yeah really um, <laughs> yeah it's it's like a, a 1500 years in the making basically exactly he, he um because he appeared in like like it's a pretty similar it's pretty similar to what happened with like robin hood right basically yeah same idea yeah just like um, I th- even I think this is even more sparsely spread out, like mentions of King Arthur. But yeah, same idea. It's like he's just kind of like a legend, and there's like references to him. There's like there's this one poem where like uh, reference to someone like some super strong, but he was not as mighty as Arthur, you know. So there's like these these little right, references yeah, yeah, yeah. to him. And then slowly we get more and more detailed exactly. stories. So the, the, the earliest kind of most collected detail, and it's not the ultimately the most collected, but the earliest most collected grouping, right, is comes from a guy named Jeffrey of Manmouth. Manmouth? It's not Monmouth? I looked up the pronunciation. <laughs> okay. Yeah, there it's weird. So basically this is when is this approximately? This is in the 12th century, so I think mid 12th century. So like, and what year did they say it was in this film? Like nine something something. Nine something something. Yeah, I don't remember. It was like eight, yeah. eight something something. Eight nine something something. Which, uh, the actual like legend, supposedly takes place. Well, I, I assume the legend doesn't like put down a year. <laughs> no. Uh, well, I mean, kind of does. I mean, because he, he appears kind of in. Well, for example, the Jeffrey of Manmouth, the the thing he he wrote is like a a history of Britain, basically. Oh, um, I see. It, it's got an actual timeline and a history. And there's another there's another work, uh, the name of because I'm that because there's like a reference to him in like nestled into like real shit sometimes. Like right, yeah. I mean, that's hat throughout history. I think that's pretty common. Like, exa- I think the way people wrote history back then is not the way people, and like, I don't think when people were reading it, they never necessarily considered it that it would be like a accurate record of exactly things that happened in the past. Like history as we consider it, it didn't really exist. It's a pretty modern concept. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So yeah, he the, he's this is kind of the the most like concentrated uh, 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 uh you know collection of stories of well uh, that this is kind of basically the jumping off point so this doesn't actually have the holy grail but it has like you know oh, okay. there's the fact that he's uh you know his father's uther it's got his like life story basically his lineage do they have like the sword and the like 
<laughs> I don't think so. I think that's added later. And the sword in the stone. I think that's also added later. Um, right. But he also has he Merlin's in it. You know, there's a he he writes the prophecies of Merlin. Um, okay. So then the Holy Grail comes out in basically like a hundred, just over a hundred years later. Mm-hmm. Um, from what is this guy's name? A Frenchman, of all people. Okay. Is the guy who uh, he writes a kind of collection of stories that introduce the Holy Grail, Guinevere, Lancelot, the Fisher King, all these various things that are, you know, actually quite... That's his name. All right, I'm not going to pronounce it. I'm going to send it to you, and you're going to pronounce his name. You ready? Okay. Yeah. Because I'm terrible at pronouncing French names, especially on the fly. Where are you putting... Okay. Uh, Chrétien de Troyes. That's his name. He basically is the guy who's responsible for all the things that we associate with Merlin, like Len or Merlin with King Arthur, mm. like Merlin. Like, you mean Mirden? Mirden, yeah. Well, that's the thing. Uh, another thing I was reading is they so Merlin's name used to be Merden, M Y R D. Well, I think that's just y. Welsh, though. Well, it is Welsh, but yeah. I was reading that the shift to the L from the double. D is kind of an odd thing. Mm-hmm. Like it's not like uh, etymologic etymologically etymologically etymologically. You know, it's kind of standard. It's kind of weird. So mm-hmm. there's like a theory that like they they didn't want it really to be associated with murder, like French for like death, murder. Oh, okay. Merd. Wait, you mean French for shit? Is that what it is? Merit is shit. Mort is death. Then yeah, it was shit. Either way, that's what they didn't want it to be associated with. But is that how how the French was pronounced all the way back then as well? I don't know. That's just what what it was uh, in the uh, uh, book I was reading. (laughs) Okay. Uh, I was saying it didn't want to associate with that. Yeah, so basically this second guy is the one who adds, the the French guy adds. Chrétien. Yeah, Kretchen adds the uh, our prime minister, adds yeah the, former uh, prime minister. Our former prime minister <laughs> is the one who adds um, basically all the romantic details is how it's described. Right, right. Like yeah, just kind of like the the. Do we have a Grail yet? This is what he 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 brings in the Grail. Okay, and then um, the chivalric like quests and all that. Yeah, and that comes from the story of Lancelot. Right. That's basically the truth. That's what I wanted to get to is because it started as I wanted to follow through and find all the true things, but it's like it, there's so many It's it, it it's it's there's not one story anyway, so it's kind of hard to say. Yeah. Like in a lot of for what? example, in a lot of, you know, versions Galahad is Lancelot's son. Yeah. Right? We could argue that that's a fallacy in this movie, but I also think there's all th- other interpretations where he's not right. So yeah, exactly. Uh, it, it's we we can't really do that. So we've we've done the best we can uh, without taking up too much time because this episode's getting deep. Um, it's getting long as so it we is. We'll move on. Yeah, yeah, we'll move on from here. Let's uh, let's let's talk about our next section here. Um, you know what they did with. Uh, with uh, how they shot it. 
but this segment today should really be called Who Shot It. Okay. Because... <laughs> what does that mean? I mean, that's... Well, if you watch the credits, you will not find anybody listed as cinematographer or director of photography. No, I didn't see that. So, who shot it? That's a matter of some question. <laughs> okay. If you go on IMDb... Yeah. And you go to Monty Python and the Holy Grail, you will see it says uh, a guy named Terry Bedford was the cinematographer. It says cinematography by Terry Bedford. That's not what it says on Wikipedia. Oh, no, sorry. I'm on Life of Brian still. Sorry. What does Wikipedia say? That is what it It says. It says Terry Bedford? Terry Terry Bedford, And what does it cite? No, no citation. Exactly. I believe this is incorrect. <laughs> Who is it? <laughs> um, I'll, I'll get to that. But why? 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 Yeah. Okay. But uh, if you watch the credits for the film, I believe it it lists uh, Terry Bedford as lighting cameraman or something like that. Right. Which, but but because he gets listed in a different section and his that sort of sounds like cinematographer, I think he was put on IMDb or whatever, which is probably where Wikipedia got it from. Right. I believe that the actual cinematographer was Howard Atherton. Howard Atherton. Okay, why do you believe this? Who was listed as camera operator. Oh, yeah, you're definitely correct about that. Camera operator. Well, especially because in the story we were mentioning earlier with John Cleese uh, um, and the smoke... Um, he was saying yeah. that he was specifically called out Terry Gilliam and the cameraman for being the ones exactly. talking about that. So presumably that's what's his name? Uh, Howard Atherton. Howard Atherton. Now this is further backed up by the fact that Howard Atherton has just been the cinematographer on a couple on a couple other movies. Right. Whereas this this other guy has not. Whereas this other guy. Um, Terry Bedford, also named Terry, interestingly. Um, Very interesting, yeah. Is also listed as cinematographer in three things, but all of them are Monty Python related. Right. So maybe that um, might be incorrect. I think we or should... actually most of them are Monty Python related and I think we should one of them is like a short film. I think we should change it. I think we should change the Wikipedia page. We should change. But the thing is, I don't know 100% that I'm correct. I believe that's what it is, though. That I mean, that's... Uh, you, you've you sold me, at least. But yeah, he was also the director of photography on Michael Bay's Bad Boys. <laughs> interesting. That's, Howard Atherton. That's weird. I mean, yeah, yeah. well, interesting. Both... Uh... I, I bet you being the cinematographer on a Michael Bay film is probably not an easy job. No. Oh, no. No, it's gonna be a, you probably have to work pretty yeah, hard. Yeah, it's gonna be a fucking. Hard. You gotta move that camera all over the place. Oh yeah, a lot of motion, a lot of, a lot of yeah, stuff exactly. that's not actually there that you gotta pretend is there. You know, exactly. Um, but anyway, yeah, Howard Atherton, correcting the wrongs here. There we go. That is sorry. I believe Howard Atherton was the cinematographer. That is the the crane uh, crane kick commentaries. Uh, uh, that is that is our official opinion. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. That's great. And other than that, I don't really have anything to say about it. Yeah, I mean that's that's 
basically it was seemed like just, pretty just gotta correct the wrongs here yeah all right well we can uh get right on with it then i guess can't we um because we have things exactly i'm trying get on with it right. yeah just a couple more things we ha- we have for you here just before we uh close her off but the music we mentioned last week um and we got it wrong a little bit that music yeah what do we say well like, so we we were just talking about who the guy who is credited as with music i i believe i said it was neil exactly. Ennis, right so he wrote a whole soundtrack for the film but then they changed yeah. it at the last minute Oh these, really? Like old Hollywood catalog tunes that were like basically royalty free. That's basically what they did. That's what they ended up using. Why didn't they use his? We'll get into that. But like, well, basically what it was is that his he they they wanted a more faux epic feel. Right. They wanted, which is what the catalog, like the the royalty free tunes, fucking gave them. Apparently Neil's music was like super authentic and like almost basically too good was almost the vibe I was getting. Oh, I see. And they want So did any of it make it into the film? I mean, as far as I know, the only thing that did was the Brave Sir Robin song that is him singing it. Bravely bold Sir Robin brought forth from Camelot. He was not afraid to die. Oh, brave Sir Robin. He was not at all afraid to be killed in nasty ways. Pray, 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 Sir Robin. He was not in the least bit scared to be mashed into a pulp, or to have his eyes gouged out and his elbows broken, to have his kneecap split and his body burned away, and his limbs all hacked and mangled, pray, Sir Robin. His head smashed in and his heart cut yeah. out and his liver removed. The brave Sir Robin ran away. Um, yeah. So I think he might have had a couple of other tunes in there, but I think actually for the most part, he didn't do a lot of the things we hear in this movie. Um, oh, that's very disappointing. It is disappointing. Um, he doesn't seem particularly disappointed about it. I mean, he, he was very good humor. He like... Uh, brought out a handkerchief and pretended to cry about it, um, but he was—he right. was obviously joking. He was uh, because he would not cry about it. He was crying about the the lost war ballads that he didn't get to <laughs> what? to put in. He was like, "Oh, the lost war ballads I could have done," but they wanted you know less serious music, right? I see. They wanted these kind of hacky, plasticky tunes, and that's what they got. See that is that's King Arthur's heroic theme. So that is called Homeward Bound by Jack Tromby. Okay. Dutch composer. So these are these are all from just old catalogs. Yep. So it seems he yeah mostly he just did the bard stuff, right. which is a bit of a shame. But yeah, it's a shame. Uh, but he did other stuff, didn't he? Later on, like music for other things. That 
if you want to hear his tunes, you can go check out. Oh, may he rest in peace. Oh, R.I.P. Neil Ennis. He's the founder in 2010. He's the founder of the Idiot Bastard Band. What is that? <laughs> it's a comedy musical collective featuring himself, Adrian Edmondson, Phil Jupitus, several other comedians I've never heard of, range of comedy songs. Interesting. Old and new with deliberately little rehearsal. Mm. <laughs> Interesting. That is uh, that is Neil Innes um, and the music that is just not actually his music, even though he's credited with the music. Um, but he did he did do the best song in it, which is the uh, Sir Robin. But yeah. Sir Robin bravely ran away away. But yeah, so let's just close it off with I think the aftermath, yeah. kind of the release of the film, because that's relevant. Basically, they test screen it. You know, they finished making Mm it. It went so badly, like, that they thought they were fucked. Um, Really? And I think this is one of the reasons they changed the music, because I think this happened before they did the music. They did this test screening, and it was terrible. Apparently, like, there was, it was kind of, they had a few laughs for the first bit, and then the last 85 minutes was, like, dead silence. Uh, So they were laughing at the Swedish moose bit. If that was in there. Um, yeah. That was all written by Michael Palin, by the way. Oh, um, is it? Okay, that's... <laughs> but, yeah. That, so... Like, I totally thought when I was watching it that I, before it started making the jokes, that I had downloaded, like, the wrong version. Uh, me too. I had the exact of, same of thought. Of the movie. Yeah. I was like, oh, shit, did I get something with hard-coded Swedish subtitles? I was like, ah, oh, god damn it. <laughs> yeah, exact same thought. Um... But yeah, so they they it's they're pretty worried, but you know they changed the music and what else can you do? I guess, uh, but it's their movie, so they decided to premiere it in New York City instead of mm-hmm. in London, um, which was an interesting but I think good decision ultimately, because and this is what I mentioned at the top of the episode, like it's an interesting point in their career um, as a group this flying the monty python's flying circus had fairly recently started airing in the united states right um so this is basically their british invasion like this is their beatles coming to play hollywood bowl or whatever i mean they actually did play the hollywood bowl later but not um as a direct result of this but basically they were uh I think they just marketed it really well in the States. Apparently there were like people like, you know, marching down Broadway with like banners for the film with like really? you know, hitting coconuts and shit. That's hilarious. Um, yeah. And apparently they were like, you know, saying like the first thousand people to see it would get free coconuts, um, you know, <laughs> shit like that. And apparently people like lock corner to watch it um, wow. on the premiere. It was like, apparently the first day was like huge. The way Idol tells it, they were they got stuck in the theater all day because they didn't expect it to be this big. So, you know, they didn't think they were going to be there all day, but they ended up being in the theater all day signing coconuts. <laughs> Where do you sign a coconut? That's what he said. He said it's not easy to sign a yeah, coconut. Yeah, because they don't have a f- smooth surface. No, it's not. 
It's not really a, right on. Not an easy task to sign a coconut. And they had yeah. to sign, I guess, I presume, a thousand coconuts. Jeez. Approximately. Well, they must have figured it out by then. Yeah, by the last one, you're probably an yeah. expert. You know how to do it. Um, but yeah, that's basically, you know, the, the film does unbelievably well in the U.S., as you can imagine. And this is basically yeah. what fucking launches them to international. Obviously, they're big in the in the U.K. They're kind of a cult thing in the U.S., but now they're now they're huge you know their their films out right. their shows out they make start making more movies yeah They're... well because i mean i definitely when i i first learned about the movies like i didn't know about the show until later mean it me too yeah me too i saw i saw this movie first and then the playboy one that we were talking about last week the end now for something right. completely different which was the sketches but still I think I saw, like, this and, like, The Meaning of Life first or something like that. Right. Yeah, like, so this is super interesting. They were kind of, this is their first film, does unbelievably well, launches them into fucking, you know, success. They played Hollywood, the Hollywood Bowl. <laughs> like, they just, did, what did they do? Sketches. They just, they just sketches, did their okay, sketches yeah. live. I saw okay. there's video of it. They did the he's a lumberjack and he's okay. Okay. Yeah, that's that's basically the movie. I think the last thing we have to do before we we uh, leave you all is to give our uh, our final thoughts on this one. Yeah. Because I know there's I mean there's definitely more. We left out so much stuff, but we always do because we only have uh, so much time. As much time as whatever we feel like. <laughs> well, yeah. I, I mean. If we we want to keep it, you know, close, reasonably short, close, yeah, exactly. We have. If we're doing two hours, it's probably too much. Two hours is too many. Yeah. So, final thoughts. What do you What do you have? What do you What are you thinking? Um. Well, I don't know if it's really changed, really, but from your initial yeah, thoughts? no, I just I I I for yeah, from my initial thoughts, like I think you know this is a this is a really funny movie. I think pretty much everybody should watch it. Yeah, it's kind of an essential movie, isn't it? Yeah. It is also funny how amateurish it is at times. No, absolutely. I think, and I'm... Yeah. I do, I get what you mean. It's like, it's, it's, uh, it's clearly, uh, not only is it clearly the first Monty Python movie, uh, yeah. but it's clearly... But it's, it's not like, like, I think the difference is, like, it's not just that these guys are making their first movie but they're making their first movie and they don't seem to have a lot of people around them who have also done it before exactly like it's they're making their first movie the two the directors it's both the directors first time directing a movie it's yeah like, exactly there's no and even like when involved. i was trying to figure out who was the you know cinematographer it's like neither of those guys were like you know experienced camera like, people did they time. yeah? Did they actually know who the cinematographer was? Like, did it actually function exactly? Like maybe a they didn't set? know how. Maybe they didn't know how you were supposed to credit somebody for that. Yeah. No. Totally. Like, it yeah. is very much. Yeah. So this guy, who who I believe was the actual cinematographer, his only previous credit uh, was as a clapper loader, which is basically a second AC. <laughs> so. I kind of imagine what they did. Like, I'm just speculating 100% now. But, like, I feel like... Because they, they came from BBC, so I feel like they must have just, like, 
got a bunch of people from like BBC who worked at the BBC, yeah, to just like come in and work on this movie. Exactly. But yeah, yeah. I don't know. I I agree. It's essential movie basically. And I mean, even if you, it's not your style of humor. Um, I, I I think you will probably watch it and laugh at least at a few things. Yeah. There's exactly. It's, yeah. it's not a there's something for everybody that's definitely not true but there's no there's a lot there <laughs> yeah definitely. and it's awesome really good movie it's, it'll be a classic for for a long time i think it ages really well i think uh, you know yeah, i think so for a movie made in the 70s there's always a few kind of cringy moments you know um, and there are a few. There are a few for sure. There's some some especially particularly the Castle Anthrax has the Castle Anthrax. Yeah, yeah. That's the rough. I don't know. Bit. Those girls looked pretty young. <laughs> that whole thing. Well, they're supposed to be 16. You know, some yeah. of them. So a little weird. Exactly. That whole thing was a bit a bit strange, but they don't go yeah. too deeply into it, which makes it mostly acceptable. And that, like I said, mostly well. Mm. But the humor, but anyway. other way, yeah. Anyway, yeah. That's that's basically that, isn't it? Check out the movie. Yeah, check out m- more cranky commentaries. Absolutely, we have a, quite a bit of a back catalog. If you uh, if you want to hear more, there's always plenty more. There's yeah, there's more where that came from. Exactly. And uh, and we will so be quickly back. before before we sign off, I'd just like to give a little bit of a shout out to our Italian listeners. Italian listeners, mama Absolutely. Mia. 